Good evening, everybody, and welcome to another awesome special episode of Ignite Radio Live. You are with Greg and Stephanie Schleter over the five mighty stations of Annunciation Radio and a very special guest that we are delighted to introduce in just a moment. So just to pique your appetite, we have a superstar Tolkien scholar with us, Dr. Brad Berzer. Just folks, for those of you who didn't know, a month ago, I was in the depths of Mordor, maybe the Misty Mountains. Those of you who may take Tolkien references, forgive me. But this is where Gandalf, if you saw the movie, he fought the Balrog, this this creature, right, that, that everybody feared. And there were many Balrogs, but this one was called, I think, Wuhan. Duran's Bane, <laughs> otherwise Corona, Wuhan. Uh, and so, anyways, uh, if you recall, Gandalf, he fights this big dragonish creature that's in fire. And uh, run, you fools. You remember that? And he, get, he goes down, and then we don't know what happens to him. Everybody thinks he's dead. But he comes back as, you know, in this dramatic scene in the woods. And I don't know the terms, but, you know, they're expecting it to be uh, Soromon. But it's actually Gandalf. He becomes the white wizard through that purification very Christic, very Catholic. So anyways, all that I digress somewhat, but I was taken by COVID and it was a tremendous opportunity to be purified in all the ways. Those of you who have suffered in any way close to that, many of you far surpassing it, the blessing of that. And Dr. Berzer spoke probably the first night that I became aware that I had this thing and then things digressed for me. So I want to thank you all for your prayers. And uh, we are blessed then tonight to, in this moment, to have Dr. Berzer present to us in a conversational fashion uh, as a Tolkien scholar. We'll just call it Today's Battle for Middle Earth. And um, just to pique your appetite in just a moment, we're going to now just to some brief commercials. So we are so blessed to be approaching the Advent season, a great gift to us as Catholics. And we will be um, having presents for Christmas again this year, which is a wonderful, wonderful evenings of word, worship, witness, confession, just a great opportunity to come before the Eucharistic Lord. Um, this year, um, Holy Trinity in um, Assumption, Ohio is hosting. Thank you, Father Dan Duran and staff and wonderful parishioners there. And they are the first three Wednesdays of December. So December 1st, December 8th, Our Lady's birthday, or I'm sorry, our, the Immaculate Feast of the Immaculate Conception, um, nine months before Our Lady's birthday, and uh, December 15th, beginning at 6.30. And again, we are um, delighted to provide this opportunity to come together as believers. You know, Lent, we have so many practices, which are great gifts, um, but Advent seems to, you know, lose its focus quite easily with Christmas preparations in a worldly sense and, and in other ways. Um, but we really encourage you to write those dates down on your calendar now so that you can very much, as we like to say, enter more heartily in to the heart of Christ's Mass. And for that, you can go to presentsforchristmas.com, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E-F-O-R, Christmas.com, to emphasize which of us, particularly after the last year and a half, aren't aware of isolation and pining for real presence, flesh and blood encounter that awakens us to our nature and God, right? We need that. And of course, the Eucharist and worshiping before Him is such that gift, uh, an occasion of healing, mercy, 
mercy, transformation, all that tremendous grace. So again, presentsforchristmas.com. Commercial number two, we want to speak just for a moment to parents and grandparents. Above all, which of us don't desire that our children more fully encounter who we are, who our children are in Christ in the fullness of our Catholic faith? That's what we're about. I'm going to say no more except direct you to massimpact.us forward slash partner and find out how we are truly endeavoring to engage marriages and families in building the kingdom. So again, massimpact.us forward slash partner. With no further ado, Steph, you get to reprise your introduction of Dr. Berzer and we'll get on with our interview. Okay, here we go. I'm going to sound all official now. Dr. Berzer holds the Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Studies and is Professor of History at our beloved Hillsdale College in Michigan. He proudly serves on the boards of the Free Enterprise Institute and the Center for Cultural Renewal. He is also happily a fellow and or scholar with the American Conservative Foundation for Economic Education, Intercollegiate Studies Institute, the McConnell Center for Public Policy, the Russell Kirk Center for Cultural Renewal, and the Center for Economic Personalism in Brazil. In 2010, he co-founded the imaginative conservative website with Winston Elliott and writes for Ignatius Insight, Catholic World Report, Town Hall, and The American Conservative. In 1990, he earned his BA from the University of Notre Dame. And in 1998, he earned his PhD from Indiana University. He is the author of several books and scholarly articles, but most importantly, his lovely wife and he have seven children. And I'm just going to say this on a little personal note. At Belief in Beverages had the beautiful opportunity, truly gift of meeting Dr. Berzer and his lovely wife and uh, made the connection that I had met his daughter at Hillsdale previously and just was so taken with her joy and goodness and and delight. And uh, so I, as I said that night at Belief in Beverages, just a real um, mm. testimony to you and your wife, Dr. Berzer, because that is just, you should be proud. And it would be remiss of us not to note that she is a formidable scholar in her own right. I believe Laura Ingalls Wilder, is that correct? For my wife, absolutely. Yes, yes. yes she is a very serious scholar. Wonderful. What really impresses me um, is your connection to the Logos became Sarks, the word in flesh, how God enters into our human realities. And just I want to ask you, uh, how did you how how were you formed to really recognize how important it is that this Catholic faith, the fullness of faith we share, permeate and enter into and be lived out in a human landscape? Well, yeah, thanks, Craig. I mean, I would say if I succeed at any of that, I owe it to my grandparents, in particular, my mom's parents. And I owe it to an aunt, uh, great aunt Loney, who took care of me mm-hmm. when I was a little kid and tried to explain to me. Uh, I remember very well, actually, when she took me to church, uh, I was very young and I asked her what the candle was about, why there was a red candle in, in the mass. And she explained to me the real presence. And, mm. and I was, I was probably only about four or five at that time, but it really hit me the kind of mystery awesome. behind all of that. And so I, I went through, uh, as, as much as a teenager can, I went through a kind of atheist period during my teenage years mm. and really rejected a lot of the faith. Uh, and I came back to it through the, the encouragement of one of my closest friends in college, a guy named Kevin McCormick. In fact, he just, 
just turned 54 uh, about two days ago. Ooh, Fabulous. Birthday, My Kevin. age. Fantastic. Happy birthday, Kevin. Yeah, Welcome. Me, me, me too, Greg. I, I turned 54 in September. So yes. I knew we were about the same age. Um, yeah. I am, so, you know, just an incredible guy uh, who really walked me through the faith and was very patient with me in college. Yeah, this was uh, part of late night dorm room discussions. And awesome. I even, even though I was in a kind of quasi atheistic phase, I, I ended up going to Notre Dame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. Not, not quite imagining how Catholic Notre Dame really was. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, there, there were just a, a lot of things that happened, but I think I owe it to a lot of people for being patient with me mm. and for really explaining things to me. I was always one of those. Uh, and I, I guess I still am. I'm one of those people who, who really needs everything kind of explained before I'm ready to accept it. Mm-hmm. So Beautiful. They, those people, yeah, they. I owe them everything. That's so, amazing. amazing. Your life is punctuating for us as you're sharing here, I think, um, a hunger that many of us have. Any, many who are listening, certainly those who are maybe distant from the faith, and that is that our God who is in the heavens condescended and makes himself present to us. And too often, I think many of us feel or reduce him to myth or something that's distant and, you know, kind of like Solomon, we navigate so many things in life and we discover at the end, all is vanity and it becomes real more than just this external thing that we follow. So anyways, um, it perhaps is a nice stage setting, if you will, for Tolkien, what he's all about. And perhaps as a guide, leader, mentor, certainly most of us would regard him as perhaps a source of entertainment but so much more. Um, if you don't mind, um, kind of weave together who is this man, J.R. Tolkien, and perhaps connected to how you, young Brad Berzer, fell in love with him. Yeah, so I have two older brothers. I'm the youngest of three. And I, I, we had always had Tolkien around the house. And, and one of the things that my mom was always encouraging of, and she was very great about this, uh, we always had all kinds of music, classical, jazz, rock, Mm. Uh, we had music all over the house, and we also had books everywhere. Yes. And so I knew of J.R.R. Tolkien even when I was younger, but it was when I turned 10, and I turned 10, as, as you did as well, in 1977, mm. and Silmarillion came out on September 5th, uh, 15th of 1977. My oldest brother turned 17 on September 23rd, and my mom had given him uh, the brand new hardback copy of wow. Marillion. So and cool. I was so taken with the cover. Mm. I just was absolutely, it was the cover called The Mountain Path, which actually was one of uh, Tolkien's paintings that he did. And he was an excellent painter. Wow. Mm. often remember that. Uh, beautiful with colors. I mean, just beautiful. He couldn't he couldn't draw figures for anything. <laughs> incredible with uh, landscapes and architecture and trees. I mean, just incredible with that. And that mountain path, that image on the Silmarillion just really beckoned to me. And so I, even as a 10 year old, tried to read the Silmarillion. And uh, that opening, if you guys remember, that opening is all about God creating the world using his, or using, um, utilizing, I should say, his angels and mm-hmm. so they sing into creation all created things except for man and for elf those are only for god to create but everything else is created through this song and i read that even though i never got beyond that opening i read that probably 10 times wow. that fall uh, i was just so taken with it and i still to this day I, you know we get to teach our, on the first day of western heritage class at hillsdale for our freshmen we get to teach genesis 
at Genesis 1 and 2. Mm. And I, I still, to this day, I cannot read Genesis 1 or 2 without also having Tolkien's creation story in the background. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, Tolkien, Tolkien so beautifully blended platonic themes with Christianity mm-hmm. that uh, it really is hard to separate. And I think Tolkien just did an amazing job in that creation story. But, but my point, and I don't mean to go on too long about this. That's no, good. good. Go. I, I was so taken with that, that the next summer I saved up all my lawn mowing money uh, and, and went down. We had actually, even though I grew up in a relatively small town in Kansas, we had three bookstores in town. And I rode my bike down to the farthest one because I liked it the best and ended up buying the trilogy and then just devoured it. So I devoured it about age 11, and I've really never stopped reading it. In fact, I would argue pretty strongly that between ages 13 and 19, when I was going through that weird atheist phase, that Tolkien really kind of kept me on track because of the morality of the story. I I wanted to be like the heroes. I wanted to be uh, virtuous in that sense, even though I didn't have my Christian faith. Uh, I believe very strongly in the heroism of the Lord of the Rings, and that really did sustain me through a lot of trials and a lot of adversities, especially as a teenager. Mm. You know, a message there to many of us is we often hear the word pagan used with dis- disparagement, and if that's a word, but um, in the roots uh, at, uh, of our th- of our theology, of our Catholic faith, is Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, and these understandings of our nature as a human person. And I think we could all stand uh, to connect more fully with, if you will, this accessible, you know, through the mind, through reflection, awareness of of the landscape that defines who we are, that is of the good and the true and the one. And we've kind of lost connection with that that gives such a foundation, I think, for that transcendence of our faith. Anyways, I'm getting, getting a little bit nerdy here, but I'll tell you, I'm very impressed that uh, Silmarillion, as you're describing here, uh, w- was sort of your, your inauguration because it does have such a metaphysical um, quality about it. it. It's not necessarily an easy read for those who aren't necessarily willing to go beyond. I used to say, you know, 10 years ago when our kids were readers, we, we required that they read classics amidst other things that we did supervise. And I'll admit Hunger Games, but then they'd have to read a classic. But I describe like Hunger Games is more as something like literary cocaine. And it's habituated a whole culture. <laughs> you know, you can use that, by the way. You don't need to quote me. Literary cocaine. It's because, you know, it, it has this immediate scintillating capture my emotions right away. And we've lost, I think, a habit of attending to truths that are transformative and I think Silmarillion, with the story woven in there, the culture and languages and all that, is truly remarkable. So tell us about this guy, J.R.R. Tolkien. Tell us who he is before we get into, you know, perhaps Lord of the Rings. Sure. So Tolkien's born in 1892, and he dies in 1973. So he's very much a man of the 20th century, but also coming out of Edwardian England. As a young boy, he was actually raised for the first few years in South Africa, even though they're British. Mm. Uh, his father was working for the diamond industry. He was a banker, and they were trying to keep the graft and corruption down as much as possible. That's mm-hmm. what his father was really in charge of while they were in South Africa. But for whatever reason, uh, health-wise, Tolkien was not able to, to handle the South African environment. And so they decided to take, the mom decided to take Tolkien and his little brother Hillary back to England and leave the father uh, for a while, and unfortunately, I mean, just horribly, uh, by the time that Tolkien and his mother and his brother arrived in England, they were uh, a telegram was waiting for them 
that the father had died mm. during oh. the time that they were away from him. Gosh. So Tolkien loses his father when he's about age four. He's then raised by his mother. His mother is fascinating. She's a, a brilliant, absolutely brilliant woman. Huh. And she becomes very taken with John Henry Cardinal Newman. Hmm. Even though Newman's no longer alive at this point, she keeps going to the Birmingham Oratory, hmm. and she finds that when wow. she's there, they actually treat her as an equal. They don't just treat her as, as some uh, pesky woman who's coming in and bothering them. They take her very seriously, and in 1900, she converts to Catholicism very much, very, very, very much against the wishes of her family. Hmm. Uh, her family is just horrified that anyone in the family would be Catholic at all, and so they do what they can to drive her away from the church. And she ends up contracting a rare form of tuberculosis that could have easily been cured had she been able to afford the money. Mm. But the family refuses to pay for the cure unless she renounces her Catholicism. Which wow, are you kidding me? No, no. I mean, it's, wow. a, it's a terrible, amazing story. And she dies then in 1904. Mm. So Tolkien has now lost his dad and his mom, and he and his brother are then given, and this had all been prepared for because the mother knew she was going to die, they are given to a priest to raise, uh, a man by the name of Father Francis Morgan, and he adopts them as oh, his so children. Beautiful. And they raise them in the Birmingham Oratory, wow. uh, which is just stunning. So, so from age 12 on, Tolkien and his brother are in the Birmingham Oratory. Uh, they're actually, they can't live there. They live in private housing nearby. But for all intents and purposes, they're raised by the priest. Remarkable. And so Tolkien, I mean, this, this really affects Tolkien, not just the kind of quality that you get from being associated with Cardinal Newman, but the Catholicism that's particular to the, the Oratorians and their ideas and their ways of thinking, mm -hmm. but also the fact that his mother died. I, and as Tolkien thought, she died a martyr. And that means that Tolkien, for the rest of his life, not only does he love his Catholicism, but he is also challenged by it because he feels like he always has to live up to his mother. And you find in The Lord of the Rings, there are no weak women, uh, mm -hmm. even some of the bad women like uh, Mrs. Saxville Baggins, who's annoying, uh, is still a <laughs> very, very strong woman. And uh, you see that in Galadriel, you see it in Arwen, you see it in Eowyn. Uh, they're just not weak women in The Lord of the Rings. And all of those women reflect in some way two things. They reflect Tolkien's love of his mother and his admiration for his mother. Mm -hmm. And they also reflect the Virgin Mary, whom mm -hmm. Tolkien had a, a very profound devotion to, uh, to him. He had a very profound devotion. So Tolkien has uh, been basically he's a genius and he's an absolute master of languages he goes on to a really good private school and then after that he goes to oxford and then world war one starts mm. and tolkien joins world war one as an officer serves very well in world war one and i'd be happy to tell a, a quick story about that please yes, yes. Um, some some great stuff going on there and But he's horrified by the war as well, and it's really during the war that Tolkien starts writing his mythology. He starts thinking about what this mythology is, kind of elements that we'll see later in the Silmarillion, some elements in the Lord of the Rings, but not many, more the Silmarillion. He will write, he writes his first dictionary in Elvish while he's in the trenches in World War One. Wow. And this, as, as he says, his mythology was created in 
huts of blasphemy and smut. Mm. <laughs> and, it's a great and, and line. Sometimes under, and sometimes under Bellfire, right, where he's just trying to keep it together. And one of the ways he can psychologically keep it together is to focus on this mythology. And so that mythology becomes really a lifesaver for him. And he, he's never wounded in the war, though. He loses two of his best friends in the war. He has three very close friends. Mm. Uh, two die during the war. They had formed themselves into a group prior to the war called the TCBS, uh, just the name of their group. And they had dedicated themselves to reintroducing beauty into the world and promoting the truths of God. Uh, that's what they had dedicated their lives to do. And they thought they would each be poets. But this mm. was the kind of poetry they were going to write. And again... Here comes yet another thing that impresses Tolkien so much. Now it's not just his mother that he's living up to, but it's also the example of his two best friends mm. in World War One. that really, and, and it's not accidental that there are four hobbits in, mm. in, the, in the Fellowship of the Ring, right? Four main hobbits. Uh, these are in many ways a reflection of Tolkien and his best friends from, from his college and, and earlier years. Uh, just incredible. Uh, what an incredible friendship that they had with all of that. So Tolkien comes back from the war. He works for a while for the Oxford English Dictionary. And then he gets a job in northern England at a small university. And then a position opens up at Oxford in 1924 and 1925. And he is awarded a chair at Oxford. And he then spends his entire career as an English and lit professor, language and lit professor, uh, for the remainder of his career up until the early 1960s when he retires. He doesn't actually write The Lord of the Rings until the 1930s, and he writes it as a sequel to The Hobbit, and The Lord of the Rings doesn't get published then. He starts it in 1938, but he's not able to publish it until 1954, mm -hmm. and he did spend much of that time actually writing. The, I mean, it took a very long time to write The Lord of the Rings for him. Uh, basically, he had it done in 1949, and then it took him about five years to find a publisher. Uh, mm -hmm. It's interesting to think how many people turned down right, <laughs> right. <laughs> i mean just Hello. kind of stunning mm -hmm. um and then and then the book catches on uh, almost immediately and then it, it's never not caught on there was a, a huge movement towards tolkien in the mid 50s and then a huge revival of tolkien in the mid 60s mostly led by american hippies which did not in <laughs> tolkien was not thrilled with that uh, he was thrilled with the success yeah. but not thrilled with his audience right <laughs> uh and then and then he passes away in 1973 mm. so he was he was a professor he was a father he was a writer he was a friend uh, just a, a really down-to-earth but also extremely imaginative person mm. who i think uh, from my from my reading of tolkien he's one of these guys who used every gift god gave him mm. for the good of christendom and I think it, I think the Lord of the Rings is one of the greatest gifts Christendom has received in the last hundred years. That is so good. So good. Um, another foundational but important question that occurs to me is that this occurred in the context of friendship and uh, just right. vital interaction, certainly his family, as you describe. But uh, I'm thinking of the Inklings. Can you share for us maybe the importance that we, we really need to listen to today in the isolationism? How important, what is good friendship? And how important is it for us to become who we're made to be? And I mean, oh, through Tolkien, like from Tolkien's standpoint. Absolutely. It's such a great question, Greg. And I think it's, it's, its answer is vital to us in the 21st century as well, that friendship does really matter. Friendship mm -hmm. makes a difference. Uh, as C.S. Lewis said, 
every friendship is a sort of secession from society. It's mm-hmm. basically saying that I can't get from society what I can get in my friendship with Greg and Stephanie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there's something that we pull back as friends from society because we need the kind of encouragement that we give one another. And Lewis went on to say that a group of three friends is always better than a group of two friends, and a group of four friends is better than that of three. And the reason is because we each bring certain things out of one another. Hmm. So, Greg, you bring things out of Stephanie. Stephanie, you bring things out of Greg. But then yeah, you she does. Brad. And Brad, bring, <laughs> and Brad brings things out of each of you mm-hmm. that I wouldn't have necessarily, that you wouldn't have thought of. And you right. bring things out of me that I wouldn't necessarily have thought, thought of. And so friendship is always this give and take in which we're bringing to the table new things, but we're forcing those people around the table to ask new questions and to understand the world in a variety of different ways. So Tolkien and Lewis had met in 1926 at a faculty meeting at Oxford and we don't know what Tolkien thought. Lewis, who could be very curmudgeonly and fiery, <laughs> wrote that he was glad to meet Tolkien, but Tolkien needed a slap or two. <laughs> 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 said, said something uppity, um, or at least it was interpreted that way. And Tolkien did always have a very dignified air about him. And Lewis was always pretty rough and kind of, hmm. uh, uh, he, he grumbled through things. And, you know, his clothes were always a mess. And Tolkien was always a bit of a fop in the way he dressed. It was always immaculate. So they had two very different personalities, but they end up meeting each other in 1926. And they decide, and this is through Tolkien, they decide that they really want to learn, and Tolkien already knows it, but Lewis wants to learn Icelandic, old Icelandic, the language of Icelandic. Hmm. And so they form this club called the Kolbiders that basically welcomes anyone who wants to learn Icelandic as an original language so that they can read the sagas in the original language to each other. Great. And they meet a couple of times a week. And actually, Tolkien does teach all of these guys Icelandic. Coalbiter is a very funny term. <laughs> very interesting. The coals. Uh, it means to bite the coals. And it, it's mocking those people in the Viking era who would rather sit by the fire and stay warm than go out on hunting missions. Mm. <laughs> so, so the coal biters, they, they were making fun of themselves as being kind of non-warrior Vikings in the way that they described it. The, the coal biters then around 1931 kind of morphs into the Inklings. Mm. And at that point, you have lots of people who start coming to Inklings meetings. There are a whole variety hmm. of people from Oxford itself who are actually professors and then you get a number of townsfolk who come as well. Uh, they would often meet on Tuesdays uh, for lunch at the Bird and the Baby, where everyone in Oxford was welcome. Anyone who wanted to be part of the Inklings could come and join in the conversation. But then they had a private meeting that was just for about 10 or 15 of them every Thursday night in C.S. Lewis's rooms at Oxford. And that's where most of the great, like the famous kinds of discussions come from and where Tolkien read The Lord of the Rings and Lewis read his problem of pain and they, they read to one another and they critiqued one another. That, that was really on those private Thursday nights. And one of the, I, I love this, one of the members of the Inklings was one of Lewis's friends from college, a guy by the name of Owen Barfield. And uh, you probably know who Owen Barfield is, but sadly, most people don't remember him anymore. He was uh, an amazing scholar. But he often talked about friendship as, and, and this is the way he put it, friendship is a commonwealth of the soul in which there is no copyright. 
Wow. Let me just, let's pause on that a second. Can you, can you say that again? We got to yeah. pause and drink that in. Say it again. Sure. So friendship, proper friendship, is a commonwealth of the soul in which there is no copyright. So good. Wow. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Right? So we don't, we don't claim in our friendship, we don't claim things specifically for ourselves, but we share everything with one another. Mm. All of our ideas, everything that matters, all of our poetry, all of our literature, mm. we, we share it with everybody in this small kind of republic uh, of friendship. And I just think that's a beautiful way of describing what the Inklings was. Uh, really was a commonwealth of the soul. And these people read to each other. They encouraged one another. They critiqued one another. So I, I would go so far and, you know, Greg and, and, and Stephanie, you can, you can push back on this if you want, but I'd throw the gauntlet down here and say that the Inklings was probably the most important group of friends in the 20th century mm. consider everything that they were able to accomplish and how much things like the Lord of the Rings, which came out of that friendship, mm-hmm. how much that's permeated culture, I think, in, a, in, uh, in very, very good ways and very healthy ways. You know, I didn't know where you were going to go when I asked that question, but I'm I'm not mm-hmm. surprised at the richness and how it informs any of us who are listening of the importance that God made us with these gifts and qualities, and he wants us to live this right. abundant life, and that's not done in isolation, that's done in sort of Trinitarian context, certainly marriage and family that forms us for this yeah, ideally right. rightly ordered, but as you're describing, I love just the witness of Tolkien. It wasn't just a kind of sort of, if I come across you, they made time and commitments for that friendship to to percolate and they saw the flourishing my goodness c.s lewis right chronicles of narnia and 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 the the whole corpus of narrative that helps us understand through story our nature how does the lord of the rings inform our understanding the importance of quest yeah absolutely i mean when we look at the lord of the rings it is a story of quest uh, but it's a story of um, riddance as well it's a story of of expiating our sin and trying to get rid of it, but carrying the burden, recognizing that we each bear that burden. So when we look at the Lord of the Rings, the ring itself, this symbol of evil, this great thing of power, they have to get rid of it. And there's the old, uh, wonderful old tale in Plato of the Ring of Gyges, in which this shepherd Gyges discovers this ring on a body he takes the ring, and when he puts it on and turns it a certain way, he finds that he's invisible. And so hmm. he goes out and does just horrific things in the name of gaining personal power. And one of those comments that Plato is trying to give us, or one of the things he's trying to tell us, of course, is that power is truly corrupting by its very nature. But this becomes one of the great debates, then, among the Greeks and the Romans, this thing of this ring of Gyges, what can we do with it? And you get someone, and I I think he's one of the greatest of the pagans, I think he's one of the greatest figures in in Western civilization, you get someone like Cicero, who in his On Duties, he writes that the ring of power should actually not be a problem for anyone, because if you were truly a virtuous person, Mm. you would only use this ring for virtuous purposes. And Tolkien's response is such a Catholic response. Uh, It is so utterly Catholic. It is that when you are handed the ring of power, you get rid of it as quickly as you can because you never know what it will do to corrupt you. Mm. And this is why Gandalf refuses to touch the ring, why Gandalf refuses to take the ring, why Galadriel refuses to take the ring, even though she's tempted to do so. Boromir, of course, succumbs to this temptation, and he does try to take the ring, and it it leads to the destruction of the fellowship of Mm. the ring. 
Now, Boromir asks for forgiveness in death, and Aragorn grants it to him, and we see a kind of beautiful confession scene. Tolkien, he's really trying to figure out exactly what do we do with this thing that could change the world, and we recognize that we don't have the capability of doing good with that thing. We have to get rid of it. So there is this quest. But it's a quest for sanctification or for holiness mm. in some way, whereas The Hobbit is truly a quest for treasure, and treasure is brought back, but of course that treasure has a price, because within that treasure is the ring, mm. and then Frodo has to deal with that after Bilbo has gone off to Rivendell. So definitely a nature of quest, but I think it's a quest of riddance and purification, of sanctification, rather than of gain, but they do gain holiness in that way. That's that's so elucidating, wonderful. I'm thinking as you're speaking, what you know, what do you think would happen if Machiavelli was sitting at the table with Token talking about these things? That's an interesting pairing. <laughs> it's a really interesting pairing. Um, you know, I, I can't help but think that they would not agree on most things. Um, they would definitely agree that uh, power exists and that power is being used. But I, I would think in Tolkien's terms that the one person within his mythology who would represent Machiavelli more than anyone else would probably be Saruman. Mm. Uh, Saruman who wants mm. to use the ring so for good. his own benefit. And uh, I think that Saruman really represents that kind of Machiavellian, uh, and I realize I'm, I'm throwing Nietzsche in here as well, but that moving beyond good and evil yes. and trying to use power only for itself. Uh, there's certainly, at least in The Prince, in Machiavelli's The Prince, I realize in the discourses, he's a little bit more virtue-oriented. Uh, well, actually, quite a bit more virtue-oriented. But in, in The Prince itself, it's so focused on the use of power for the creation of power and the mm. sake of power that yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see them getting along at all except... Uh, <laughs> Having a pint, maybe. That's, Beyond that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe they would agree to have a drink together. Let, let's explore uh, a key area that is such a gift along the lines of redemptive suffering. Go there. How does Tolkien inform us of the design and value and purpose of redemptive suffering? And any of us who are listening, gosh, coming off of COVID and what, myself and all of us that are dealing with that, uh, inform us. Suffering is everything for Tolkien. I, I mean, I think he is truly orthodox in his Catholicism on this, because, of course, he suffered so much. Mm. He suffered when his dad died. He suffered when his mom died. He suffered when his two best friends in World War One died. He also, uh, this is something that's not widely known, he also suffered from severe depression mm. and actually had to be hospitalized uh, at least once during his adult life hmm. because of his depression. Wow. And, uh, you know, I don't know what the cause of that was, if that was from his childhood traumas or if there was something chemical going on there, whatever it could be, but he definitely suffered from that. And uh, he was always, I think he's one of these guys that, uh, and, I, and I don't know how to put this where it doesn't sound a little strange, but I think there are certain people on earth who are so talented that God actually gives them some suffering to hold back their egos mm. so that they don't mm. become too taken with their own talents. And I feel like that happened with Tolkien in a way. That is not that God's trying to torture anyone, totally get he's that. trying to keep us humble. Uh, he, he's trying to keep us holy in some way. And you see that in some of the saints as well. And I do actually think Tolkien could be regarded, I think there, there are certain miracles that happened during his life, especially around the Eucharist. Uh, that I think Tolkien probably could come up for canonization, and it would not be a lost cause by any means. But I, I think that suffering, 
as you ask, Greg and Stephanie, I think that suffering is essential to the Lord of the Rings. You don't see it much in The Hobbit. Uh, the Hobbit, of course, is more of a children's story, and it's more to be a kind of delight in things mm-hmm. wonderful and good, and to go on these adventures and and to to be small but but mighty in the face of the world. And you still have that theme in The Lord of the Rings to be small but mighty in the face of the world. But you have Frodo who's bearing this burden, and it's it's literally eating into his skin. The chain on the back of his neck is eating into his skin. Mm. The weight of the ring is so bad and he's lost at times he's so confused he wanders around and sam has to kind of direct him and i don't think we often think about that as we're looking at the lord of the rings there there are so many times that frodo and sam are suffering and sam gets frodo out of his out of his state gets Mm -hmm. him out of that and uh, is able to kind of turn him towards other things and you know sam well (laughs) Sam to me is the hero of the story. I was going to ask you. Is, that's beautiful. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, I think he is. But but certainly he's in large part the hero of the story because he recognizes how important Frodo's suffering is. But he does what he can to bring him out of it mm-hmm. and to at least allow him to endure that suffering. Friendship, right? That that true yeah, friendship, right yeah, there. Pure friendship. Mm. Pure friendship. Brad, you had mentioned um, Tolkien in the word Eucharist and miracles and such. Can you can you expand, um, as you did at Belief in Beverages, just his love of the Eucharist and the power he saw there? Yeah, he had a very strong devotion to the Eucharist. Uh, and he said, and I don't have this in front of me, I apologize. It's in his letters. But he says, it, the Eucharist is the one most important thing on earth. It's the thing which we should all love. Uh, and he said, within the Eucharist, there is contained all the mystery of life, everything that anyone could ever want. So there's nothing greater than the Blessed Sacrament for, for Tolkien. And he was a daily Mass Catholic. Uh, he had the Mass memorized in Latin. He even wrote some some of the Mass, not much, but he wrote some of it out in Elvish. Oh. <laughs> I was going to make a joke, but that that's really where you no, were going. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> um, we, we have, uh, and, and he was a very much a Latin Mass Catholic. He was... Mm-hmm. He was disturbed by Vatican II. He went along with it, uh, mm-hmm. but he was definitely very fearful that we were losing the commonality of language and the beauty that was in the Latin. Um, so, uh, but he again, he was very faithful. He just mm-hmm. was skeptical about those changes. But yeah, he there's a moment he describes in his letters where he actually believes that he he sees the face of his guardian angel interceding between himself and the Eucharist. And wow. he believes that through his guardian angel, he can see to uh, not a wrong degree, but to a proper degree, face of God. Wow. And he has this, it's a moment of timelessness for him that really sustained him through a lot of dark times that mm-hmm. he had had this experience of really, as he thought, God being made manifest in front of him through the Eucharist. Uh, so beautiful, beautiful stories. And I wouldn't, that, that's at least, I think, one, I don't know if we could call it a verified miracle because it's only him describing it. But certainly, yeah, there's nothing to indicate that that didn't happen. Uh, everything to indicate that it did happen, that it, he had that powerful experience. Uh, he said, and I, again, I don't have this right in front of me, and I apologize because it would be no, good to good. look directly at the letters on this. But he basically says that there is this kind of multi-hued face of the guardian angel and of God that penetrates itself through the Eucharist into the angel and then into Tolkien's soul. Mm. 
So, yeah, he's very beautiful about that and um, definitely devout. There's also, of course, in The Lord of the Rings, you have the Lemboss, which is mm-hmm. this way bread that is given to Frodo and to Sam and to the company, to the Fellowship of the Ring. And even a, a small nibble can sustain you for an entire day. And Tolkien said later on in life, when he was asked about this for a movie treatment uh, that was being considered for The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien said that, well, let me just say that this is something of a kind of supernatural quality and didn't go much farther than that in his explanation. But if Mm -hmm. you translate the Elvish, there are two words that the Elvish use for Lembos, and one is translated as the bread of life and the other is the bread for the journey. Mm. So one wow. corresponding to the sacrament of yes. Holy Communion and one Viaticum. corresponding to last rite. Right, yes. that's awesome. Absolutely. That's awesome. So, yeah, I think it's pretty clear. Plus, only women can make it, you know, very similar to nuns making the, the, mm-hmm. the Eucharist, making the bread, at least. And, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I should say making the bread, not making the Eucharist, but making the bread. So, so yeah, good. pretty pretty interesting. I, I, don't think, I, I don't think that symbolism was lost on Tolkien. I think that was pretty purposeful on Mm. his part, especially given his love of the Blessed Sacrament. That's awesome. And of course, one can't think of the Eucharist without thinking of Our Lady. So my next question is, can you expand on his relationship with the Blessed Mother and then perhaps flow into a little bit about um, the other woman in his life, his wife? Yeah. So the three women who matter most to him, by far, when he's a younger man, uh, are his wife and his mother and the Blessed Virgin. Uh, later, of course, he'll have a daughter, Priscilla, and she'll become part of that as well. And I think there's something in Tolkien that's uh, deeply respectful, I mean, deeply respectful of women. Mm-hmm. And we get that as well with the interviews from his former students. Uh, this was at a time in Oxford where women were just uh, being admitted really for the first time. And uh, a lot of professors didn't know how to handle that and didn't handle it very well. Mm. But according to all of Tolkien's students, Tolkien handled it beautifully. And women students were very taken with him, especially because he was so fatherly and so open to them, uh, which I think is, is wonderful. But he, he says in his letters, Stephanie, that the Blessed Mother is the root of all of his understanding of beauty in the world, Mm. that there is no beauty in the world without first understanding his love of the Blessed Mother. So Mm. there's no doubt that there is that connection there. And you do see her. I wouldn't wouldn't call Galadriel a Marian figure because Galadriel's tempted by the ring, but I would call her Marian-like. And I think you also see that in Arwen, Mm -hmm. the figure that, that... that Aragorn marries. Uh, she's not. A, she, she doesn't have a lot of time in the Lord of the Rings, but the time that she has is very important. I would actually argue, strangely enough, that the most Marian figure in the whole trilogy is Aragorn. Mm-hmm. And I know that sounds weird because obviously he's a man, mm-hmm. but at the end, there's this great little story at the end of the Lord of the Rings in the appendices. There's a story called the story of Aragorn and Arwen. And we find out at the end of the story that Aragorn is able to choose the time of leaving this earth. Hmm. It's not suicide. He actually gets to choose when he is assumed bodily into heaven. And I I think that's Hmm. absolutely a Marian image. I think that Aragorn kind of represents what we would have been prior to the fall, where we live our life and then we kind of negotiate with God at what time are we willing to leave this life and when do we go into the next one? Hmm. And, and there seems to be something to that, not that Mary negotiated with God, 
but certainly we believe that Mary was assumed bodily into mm-hmm. heaven. That that dormition or whatever we want to call it, uh, I think is is very powerful mm-hmm. for us as Catholics. But I think also it really affected Tolkien in the way that he thought about what life should have been mm-hmm. if we hadn't had the fall. What? I just want to hear Go about ahead. his wife real quick. Oh, Tolkien's wife. Yes, I'm sorry, Stephanie. No, that's okay. Um, uh, Tolkien's wife was uh, a wonderful woman. She was a bit of a reluctant convert. She had been raised Protestant, but she was an orphan like Tolkien was. They had a lot in common. She was a few years older than Tolkien. She was uh, a master at the piano. She was a master pianist Mm. and uh, very talented, very poetic. And I think that she was very much the equal of Tolkien in terms of personality and in terms of their marriage. They had a strong marriage. But uh, there's no doubt that her converting to Catholicism was always a bit of a sore spot with her. Uh, As far as I know, she was never reluctant to raise the children Catholic, but she always was just a little bit distant about her Catholicism from what little we know of her life Mm. throughout their marriage. And uh, we get glimpses of her, strangely enough, in some of Lewis's writings, and Lewis didn't think much of her uh, at all and neither did Lewis's brother, Warney. So neither Jack nor Warney thought much of Tolkien's wife. And it's unfortunate that we don't have more descriptions of her because we basically have Tolkien's version of her and then we have Lewis's Mm -hmm. version of her. And they don't quite fit. They don't quite mesh with one another. So it's hard to know exactly what kind of a person she was. Thank you. So I'm going to foray into a subject, Galadriel, Eowyn, Arwen. These are characters that I'm going to suggest... Uh, I'm going to say it. They just, they exude a God-designed femininity to the question. Um, how does, how does Tolkien convey um, an essential femininity relative to today's ideas? Yeah, I think he does. I mean, in, at least um, as I read him, not only because of his devotion to his wife and to his mother and to the Virgin Mary and then later to his daughter Priscilla, I think he has a very strong sense of what women are. And I think that he believes very strongly that a woman can be virtuous and powerful and humane and humble all at the same time. And I think that he does pull that off very nicely in The Lord of the Rings. And I've seen feminist critiques that argue that there really are no women in The Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. These are actually just men disguised as women. Mm -hmm. But I don't think from Tolkien's standpoint that's true at all. I think these are idealized visions of what he thinks womanhood should be, and it should be a very powerful thing uh, in all of this. And of course, we see the kinds of sacrifices that the women make. Mm-hmm. Uh, Galadriel makes the sacrifice for her ring, knowing that once the one ring is gone, her ring, one of the elven rings, will be destroyed, and everything that she's created over thousands of years Never thought of that. Wow. Will be destroyed as well. Uh, and so she willingly gives that up. Elrond does too, but of course, since we're talking about women, uh, right, so the three rings, um, the elves are all going to be destroyed. Gandalf has one, uh, Arwen, uh, excuse me, Galadriel has one, and, and uh, Elrond has one. So they, they each are going to lose that. And then when we look at someone like Eowyn, Eowyn, of course, is the most conflicted, but she's also the youngest and she's the least experienced mm-hmm. of all of them. But she wants, in the worst way, to sacrifice herself for her community. She wants to sacrifice herself as a person who can show that the Rohirrim really matter. And then you also get the element of sacrifice in Arwen, because Arwen has to give up her immortality in order to marry Aragorn. 
And so she, who's been around for thousands of years as well, now will suddenly live a normal, uh, a long, for long. Mm-hmm. But from the point that she commits herself to Aragorn, she is now living as a human, as a mortal. So they all give that up, and yet they all remain very strong. And I think that that's a, a beautiful image of mm-hmm. woman, that, that there is a lot that is given up, but it actually makes everybody stronger. It makes the community stronger. It makes the person, the woman stronger, makes the family stronger, everything. So I think there's a, maybe it's a paradox, but it definitely does show that women have very vital roles in society. Folks, you're tuned in to Ignite Radio Live. So blessed to have Dr. Brad Berzer with us talking about Tolkien, and not just Tolkien, the genius and gift that he was in his stories, Lord of the Rings and others, to really communicate, shall we say, a God-designed humanity, discovering our identity from which flows our mission, and how, how necessary that is for us today, with so many you know competing ideas being thrown at us, um, to really connect, certainly um, the Mass, the great the sacraments, um, but all certainly scripture is all meant to, you know, communicate to us our very nature, our godlike nature. And at the core of it is really search for identity. And in the midst of that amnesia, Christ enters uh, into this earth, condescends, reveals himself, and through story, such a key theme here, that story makes it accessible. Christ used parables and uh, how Tolkien so masterfully did this. Um, unfortunately, I'm seeing we're at the end of time, and I do look forward to further conversations with Dr. Berger, but I have to ask this question. One of the peculiarities to me in Lord of the Rings is this interesting character, Tom Bombadil. What what is up with him? I mean, what, what, Tolkien, everything is purposeful. Way to bring us in for a well, but, but Yeah, but <laughs> what's his purpose in Tolkien? Yeah, you know, there's a lot of debate on that. And we used to have a very active Tolkien society on campus where we really, we really went after each other on this question of Tom Bombadil. In fact, there was nothing more more controversial in our discussions than that of Tom Bombadil, but my my own sense, and I actually love the Tom Bombadil Goldberry scenes within The Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. I think they're fantastic, and I think that they do add this mystery. So everything else, I think, has a certain symbolism. Aragorn is the true Christian king. Lembos is the Blessed Sacrament. Each of these women we've talked about is a reflection in some way of the Virgin Mary. But when you get to Tom Bombadil and Goldberry, they're just enigmas. And Tolkien said that he wanted to have at least one mystery, something that just simply Hmm. could not be explained in The Lord of the Rings. And Bombadil was that kind of figure. My own sense, for what it's worth, is that Bombadil and Goldberry represent an unfallen unfallen Adam and Eve. I think that they are the first. We know that Bombadil is the oldest, and I think they represent what Adam and Eve should have been. Interesting. Uh, that they each represent nature, they live with nature, they understand what nature is, they have almost perfect stewardship over the earth, they name things. So I, I think it's a very much, it's an endemic moment where these guys just have not fallen for whatever reason. I like that. I mean, and I think back to um, Newman, grammar of ascent, the illative sense. I mean, I'm throwing some nerdy things out for our listeners, but just this sense that there's something that we cannot grasp empirically or reduce to our logic, but we're we're left mindful. Like, I even think the mystery of of the enemy, mysterium iniquitatum, the mystery of sin in our world, that as God is omnipotent, that means that every amount of evil God at least allows, especially in the heavenly realms— 
And, uh, you know, Ripperger speaks about this quite extensively, um, but just as an exorcist, but he kind of conveys that as God allows them on a short leash, it's for the purpose of our being forged in virtue, which leaves us with a kind of mystery, a kind of availing to things unknown in the, you know, I guess, noetic, heady sense. Brad, any final things as we come in for a landing here this time around that just through our conversation, you really like to punctuate? Yeah, you know, I just, I, I love the conversation. It was wonderful talking to both of you. Absolutely wonderful. And I thank you for actually caring about my views on these things. That's yes. Um, <laughs> You're I, so I, good. I would, I would just, I would like to plug uh, Sam. We didn't talk about Sam, really. Uh, I'd just like to show, I mean, I would like to argue as we conclude here that Sam is really a kind of St. John figure. Mm. That is that, you know, he's not Jesus. Frodo has the burden of being the priest. And I think Gandalf is the prophet and Aragorn is the king. So we have the three offices of Christ. But it, it's Sam in many ways who's the true hero of the story because we know that Frodo is on this trajectory that has to end with the destruction of the ring. But Sam doesn't have to go with Frodo, but he goes with Frodo and he maintains his mm. faith throughout the entire journey. And he's just like St. John at the cross. You know, mm. all, all of Jesus' disciples betrayed him so good. in one way or another, except for John, who stood with him at the cross. And I think that's Sam. I think Sam is that St. John figure. And therefore, I, I just I think he reminds us of what we can be. We're never going to be Jesus. Though, of course, we, we strive for Christification. We strive for sanctification. But we can definitely be Sam, and we can be St. John. Mm. Um, we can do, we can mm. have that kind of loyalty that is just untarnished. Mm. And I believe that's a really strong theme in the Lord of the Rings. I love that. Folks, as we're entering into the crescendo of fall with Dr. Brad Burzer talking about J.R. Tolkien and Lord of the Rings, really a magnificent, if you will, story that takes us into truths that awaken us to who we are, surrounded by the majesty of fall, right? We see these beautiful leaves and they're just kind of magnifying God's glory and truth. But at the heart of that is a kind of dying, right? The Paschal mystery. It reveals kind of our nature. All of us are on that journey. I'm so grateful for those who prayed for me and, you know, experiencing some moments, really dark moments at death's doorstep at uh, sometimes uh, moments in the last couple months. And, you know, the point that I'd make is thank you for your prayers. But really, this is punctuating the journey we're all on and with the glory of God and the quest, the quest. So I'm really moved tonight and maybe leave us with this, that we have a quest of eternal life for ourselves, our marriages, our families, our world. It is all defining. It is the, the, the purpose of our existence. So blessed tonight to have Dr. Brad Berzer just give us a glimpse of it through uh, the life and work of J.R.R. Tolkien. So blessed to have you all with us listening and you, Dr. Berzer. I am eager to have you back Mm -hmm. with about five pages, which I haven't written out yet, but of further questions (laughs) and conversations because I think it's so meaningful. But thank you so much for being with us tonight, Dr. Berzer, and all of you on Ignite Radio Live. For other programs, go to igniteradiolive.com. We do invite you to presentsforchristmas.com coming up in December. And uh, join us for our Belief in Beverages Nights free the third Thursdays of every month. Um, You can find that at massimpact.us forward slash BNB. So again, Dr. Berzer, 
our dear friend Brad now. Um, thank you for being with us and sharing just the grace that the Lord is flowing through your words and your sharing and your passion for Him through Tolkien. And uh, I know we were blessed and I know our listeners mm-hmm. are also. So we very much look forward to having you back again soon. Listeners of this wonderful Ministry of Annunciation Radio, God bless you. Until next time. With the balance of our time in this month of October, it's probably appropriate we conclude with some great holy haunting, a voice from the past. None other than our subject tonight, J.R.R. Tolkien, on a record reading an excerpt from Lord of the Rings. I cannot read the fiery letters in Frodo in a quivering voice. No, said Gandalf, but I can. Letters are Elvish, an ancient mode, a language that of Morgoth, which I will not utter here. This in the common tongue is what he said, close enough. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them, one ring to bring them all, and the darkness bind them. There's only two lines of verse long known in Elven law. Three rings for the Elven kings under the sky, seven for the dwarf lords in their halls of stone, nine for mortal men doomed to die. One for the Dark Lord on his dark throne in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. One ring to rule them all, one ring to find them. One ring to bring them all and in the darkness bind them in the land of Mordor where the shadows lie. Upon the hearth the fire is red, beneath the roof it is a bed. But not yet weary are our feet, still round the corner we may meet a sudden tree or standing stone that none have seen but we alone. Tree and flower and leaf and grass, let them pass, let them pass. Hill and water under sky, pass them by, pass them by. Still round the corner they may wait a new road or a secret gate. And though we pass them by today, tomorrow we may come this way and take the hidden paths that run towards the moon or to the sun. Apple, thorn and nut and slow, let them go, let them go. Sand and stone and pool and dell, fare you well, fare you well. Home is behind and world ahead, and there are many paths that tread through shadows to the edge of night, until the stars are all alight. Then world behind and home ahead, we'll wander back to home and bed. Mist and twilight, cloud and shade, away shall fade, away shall fade. Fire and lamp and meat and bread, and then to bed, and then to bed.